Angola is currently the world's fifth largest producer of diamonds, and yet only 40% of the country's known diamond resources are being mined and recovered. But this looks set to change, as the government has become proactive with the mining industry, updating its legislation to welcome and attract private investment. Hi, I'm Gerard Peter, and welcome to Deep Insights. This week, Editor-in-Chief Laura Cornish talks to Ahmed Abdel-Hakam, of Eversheds Sutherland and Edan Golan of Edan Golan Diamond Research and Data about understanding the regulatory changes that will help Angola become a formidable diamond mining competitor across the globe. Let's join the discussion. Eden, I'm going to start with you. You know, um, Angola is rising as a formidable region in becoming a prime diamond producer. So how do you foresee the establishment and ambition of the Angolan Diamond Hub as a platform for the enormous flow of diamonds? Um, first of all, I think it's, it's essential for a government to be actively involved in promoting its, uh, its diamond industry. This is true for, for uh, producing countries as well as for uh, trading countries such as India and Belgium, Israel. Um, what we what we should really remember in that context is that when we're talking about it in involvement, we're talking about support, uh, the kind of support that generates a lot of of, of problem solving, um, allowing commerce to work uh, freely. Um, as you know, uh, diamonds is a, is an unusual commodity in the sense that it's small, high value, uh, difficult to price. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, what we find is that many uh, traders are very price sensitive. So taxation, the way taxation is treated, all of those elements are very important in, in uh, the sense of when a government is evaluating how to treat, what kind of policies it needs to implement when, uh, when approaching its, its uh, diamond resources. And in that regard, I think that the fact that Angola now is, is addressing it, uh, modernizing uh, its approach, it's, it's essential if it wants to uh, play on that field. Brilliant, Eden. Thank you so much. Ahmed, the country is going through a reform and it is aimed at, at improving things. But, you know, the reality is that investor confidence in the country's legislation and policy remains quite weak. Uh, but the Angolan government has updated its legislation um, specifically to propel the mining sector forward. So, in your opinion, does that contribute to restoring and attracting private investments? Okay, um, well, the, the short answer to your question is yes. So, but, but, but first, let me start by agreeing with you that a few years ago, Angola may have suffered from a negative perception from foreign investors for, for the reason that you just outlined. However, I think we should really point out that there has been a substantial shift in policy with the new leadership and the package of regulations adopted the last few years have significantly improved the country's attractivities in the mining sector in general and in the precious metals mining in particular. I think. For example, the government has been particularly focused on the reorganization of the mining sector as a whole with a new governance model for the mining sector and a new foreign exchange regime with basically by adopting a battery of presidential decrees since 2017 in relation to, the, to a number of issues such as the creation of the National Resources Agency, 
putting in place a comprehensive foreign exchange regime for the diamond sector, uh, putting in place technical regulations for the marketing of rough diamonds and dealing with customs as well. So uh, read together and all these legislative tools read in combination, they basically contribute to two things. I think that they increase the sector efficiency through the reduction of the state's direct participation in the sector. And they also tend, or at least aim, to promote transparency in the industry. So I really think that we're, we're heading into the right direction. Ahmed, that's, that's awesome news. And I think that really speaks to the very points about why we're covering this topic today, is to see such positive reform coming from Angola and, and the steps that they're taking to, to really boost their mining industry. So it's really great to hear some, mm -hmm. some insight from you on that point. Uh, a question for both of you, and, and Eden, maybe you'd like to, to comment on it first. I'd like to quote Reuters, the diamond industry, they say, went from carrots to peanuts as the COVID-19 pandemic saw the closure of mines in Lesotho, Canada, and high disruptions as a result in the value chain. And we've seen rough diamond prices going down for by between 15 and 27%. So in your opinion, Eden, how did Angola navigate its way through this? And what opportunities can you see arising from this? Uh, I think that uh, Reuters got the numbers wrong. The prices went down by about, uh, um, on average, by 9%. I think that the, the um, if you look across the board, I think that we're looking at 9 to to 15% at most, um, not, not more than that. The, the diamond industry is very heavily dependent, almost completely dependent on the gem uh, interest, the interest of uh, the part of consumers, mostly in, in the United States and China, in diamond jewelry. Uh, in other words, it's, it's completely dependent on retail. Uh, with retail stores closed and a limited interest in online sales by the part of consumers, consumers don't buy a lot of diamonds online. It's, it's not growing at the same rate as other products. Even cars are bought at more uh, frequently than, than high-priced diamond jewelry. So once retail is closed, you know, the diamond industry, just like textile and many other uh, retail-dependent areas, uh, suffered heavily. Um, that being said, it's an interesting in industry because it's um, at the same time very dependent on an emotional connection. So what we saw this year, and it also happened many times before, we saw this in 2001 um, after 9-11, we saw this in Japan after the Fukushima uh, disaster, that once there is a drop in demand, a strong drop in demand because of either economic, natural or terrorist uh, related activity, we see a very strong rebound in demand right afterwards. And the reason for that is that diamonds, diamond jewelry, are very much connected to the idea of love. Um, and, and so just you know, to give you an example, uh, the, the, in the month that Fukushima, the Fukushima disaster took place in Japan, um, the imports of polished diamonds leaked, just went through the roof. I'm talking about dozens of percent. And the reason for that is that you wake up one morning and, and you're faced with this major disruption of your day-to-day -day life. And you say to yourself, wait a second, life is short. You know, I, 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 you know, there's this woman that I've been dating for a while. This is time to propose, you know, I need to express my love. 
so we saw that. Uh, we, and, and so the rebound, both in prices and demand and sales have been, in fact, I think the US, um, I, I just did the, the calculation uh, the day before yesterday, um, demand for jewelry in the United States actually outpaced uh, in 2020, outpaced 2019. So um, in that regard, you know, there's a, a sharp drop and a sharp uh, return. So, so it didn't go to peanuts, it, it grow up peanuts maybe. Um, and, and that is very, uh, very common. We've seen it for decades uh, since World War II. This is the behavior uh, towards uh, diamond jewelry. So in that regard, if you want to put this in, context, in the context of Angola, um, you know, when you're, you mentioned, uh, uh, Ahmed, you mentioned earlier uh, oil and oil prices, um, we see this with every commodity. So the best way for a country to approach the issue is diversification. So you have a little bit in oil and you have a little bit in diamonds, you have a little bit in this, you know. So just like you manage your personal portfolio, a, a country needs to manage its own portfolio in terms of, of investments and, and dependency on revenue. And in that regard, I think it's very important for, for Angola to do that, including with diamonds. Eden, thank you so much. Uh, I love the, the emotional diamond connection you brought up. I think it's absolutely a, a, an important point to raise when we're talking about diamonds. So thank you for that. Ahmed, do you want to add on to Eden's thoughts about this particular question regarding Angola navigating its way through the diamond industry in COVID-19? Yes, and uh, I, I'm afraid I'm, I'm just not, I'm not going to disagree with Eden. I think we sink from the same page, really. I've also read that Reuters article, which was back in August, which already which is already ages ago in our times. But uh, I think it actually does not paint a too much pessimistic picture. And I'm here referring to the fact that the prices for high value diamonds were not that badly impacted, actually, after all. And in addition to that, diamond prices have significantly recovered since then already in just four months. Also, I think one should not be too harsh in its assessment of the situation. Uh, by that, I mean that Angola is really not the only diamond producing country which suffered from a dip in the price or production as a result of the pandemic. I mean, looking at the bigger picture, I think neighboring countries such as South Africa or Botswana or even DRC, uh, they have all seen a drop in diamond production in the range between six to 10%, roughly speaking. So the main issue, in my view, is how Angola is positioned to take full advantage of the post-pandemic recovery now that we have vaccines, etc. I, I, I really think that this will be through the implementation of an investor-friendly legislation, and we may come to that later, but and the completion of its ambition 2019-2022 privatization plan, which basically includes the future flotation of a part of Indiana's shares, basically. Uh, I really think that winning the post-pandemic era goes through this route, and Angola, I think, is already well positioned to do so. Uh, maybe one final point is the upcoming creation of the Angola Diamond Exchange and the hiring of Peter Muse, who oversaw the establishment of the Diamond, Diamond Bourse as well, is a clear signal of the country's willingness to be a serious player in the global market. Ahmed, thank you very much. If I could add to that, if I may, Ahmed in a, in, in, in kind of hinted to something that I think is important to point out. Um, when mines closed down during this uh, recent, uh, uh, the past year, what we saw was two different uh, approaches on the parts of mining companies. 
there are mining companies that really, really struggled financially. Mining is very uh, cash intensive. So you need a constant cash flow. Uh, small companies find it very, very difficult to survive during such a period. Um, and therefore, I think it will be smart for Angola to not only let in and, and encourage small uh, companies, minor, uh, junior miners to, to operate, but also large, well-established companies. If we look at Angola, at, uh, at Alrosa and De Beers, we saw that not only did they continue to mine whenever the local governments permitted it, given the spread of the pandemic, um, they continue to mine, even though they knew that they don't have anybody to sell the goods to. They, they kept the goods and, and, and had built up huge inventories during, these, uh, during those months. So what it did from a country's perspective is continue to provide jobs, continue to provide an income, even though you know, the, the country didn't enjoy income from, from uh, royalties because there were no sales, they did enjoy income that came from every other operation, uh, be it uh, you know providing food, you know. So in that regard, it's it's essential for government to to make sure that the mix of miners uh, is such that it mitigates whatever kind of outcome uh, they might face uh, economically or politically, etc. Ahmed, in the past, a deterrent to investing in Angola was the fact that foreign investment was restricted to 50%. Has this changed under the country's new leadership? Can you please unpack this for us? Yes. So, okay, this is a hot topic in investment in mining, in mining and other regulated sector as in general as well, like in oil and gas. A number of countries have restrictions in place. Now, irrespective of whether you can, you can own more than 50% or not into an entity that carries on mining projects in Angola. I think the real issue that I have seen with clients is, is not really the amount of shareholding, but really the ability to be able to freely transfer revenues that come out of that mining project out of the country. So what the, that's what we call free transfer of capital. And to what extent there is a stable there is stability and under the word stability you can break it down into two or three items so political stability economic stability and legal stability so the political stability i'm gonna put that in contrast with for example to illustrate it with what happened in a number of neighboring countries such as uh, where uh, where basically presidential elections dragged on over months and there was uncertainty as to who was the clear winner for example uh, that really had a damaging effect on invest, investment attractivity. Investors basically froze any potential uh, uh, investments in the short term until they knew about the outcome. When I talk about economic stability, obviously factors such as inflation, for example, the ability to be able to, to uh, import hard currency easily or basically repatriate that hard currency abroad. Uh, now moving on to the third limb of this is the legal stability. I think what is paramount is for investors to to make sure that they guarantee a fair rate of return in their investments and also when they negotiate their contracts with governments is to ensure that basically they're not going to be hit with a sudden or slash abrupt slash discriminatory legislative measure as a result of uh, that can which can impact their investment basically why i'm saying that is because we've seen in other neighboring countries in the last year 
or a couple of years, sudden spikes in uh, royalties, for example, or the application of uh, retroactive windfall taxes. Uh, and this, this really, from a disputes lawyer perspective, uh, and irrespective of mining or not, this has this can trigger a, not only can have a, an impact on investment attractiveness, but also can trigger a barrage of claims. So just to give you a, a simple example, and I'll end there. Uh, I'm not gonna, I mean, inundate the conversation with examples, but for example, taking the solar energy, t 10 to 15 years ago, countries such as Spain or Italy or the Czech Republic have implemented really investor-friendly legislations with subsidies to the energy solar production. And then after the financial crisis, they, they went, they embarked on a sudden and abrupt uh, basically rollback of that legislation. That, let me tell you, triggered a barrage of claims. Now Spain has been hit with over 40 claims by foreign investors before arbitration tribunals and has already lost, for example, in between at least 10, 10 of them ordering Spain to pay millions and millions of dollars. So while it's very important for investors to ensure that they get these three sub-stabilities, it's also important that governments, while, and that's a big caveat, while it is very important to stress that they retain a sovereign right to regulate and to implement the legislation they want. But obviously, when they do this, they should be mindful of doing it in a non-discriminatory ma ma manner, ensuring that due process is involved and that the stakeholders in the market are properly consulted, just to avoid bad surprises down the road. Eden, given the COVID-19 travel restrictions, how can diamond sales be executed effectively in the digital space? Well, first we need to separate rough diamonds from polished diamonds with, with rough diamonds. Rough diamonds is very difficult to sell digitally. Uh, there has been some success with that. Um, the way it's possible, the way to do this is to uh, have to you scan. There are uh, devices that scan diamonds and give you very uh, um, intimate uh, understanding of that diamond. Uh, what can you... Uh, you know, what kind of inclusions it has, uh, what kind of, of uh, uh, polishing options are ahead of you. And uh, in that regard, I mean, every polishing facility in the world has that uh, equipment. So if you provide uh, prospective buyers with uh, the details of those stones, they can uh, make an assessment, the buyers can make an assessment of, you know, how much they're willing to pay for that diamond. Uh, this is all good and fine until you deal with the smaller, lower quality, lower value diamonds, which are usually sold in big bolts and, and in big parcels. Um, and and uh, there are two ways of doing this. Uh, one, you need to inspect it visually and and uh, do a little bit of, of, uh, of uh, travel. Uh, the other way is to sort of uh, allow a blind purchase that has... Uh, a number of uh, one is the ability to return goods that don't fit, you know, your your needs. Uh, that's difficult for a country to do. Uh, the other way to approach this is that you, as a buyer, you feel confident enough to buy blindly because you know that the goods that you are not interested in, you can repackage and sell on to somebody else who will buy. Um, that is the easiest way to go. It's less. Um, it's it, in the diamond industry in general, it's considered a, a uh, you know, we call it the spaghetti chart. 
you know, goods move to one place and they move to another and it takes a while until they find the right home. Uh, and it's inefficient and it rises and pushes up the price of the rough and, and it doesn't, uh, and it erodes from the profitability. So it's not a good solution. Um, but all of this is under the assumption that it is the state that is selling it. And that is an unusual situation. Usually what we find is that companies are selling it. And in that regard, there are a number of, of ways of selling uh, rough around the world, either contract sales, that means uh, uh, you have uh, uh, you know, regular buyers that have been pre-vetted. Uh, you can do this through tenders at central places such as Antwerp. The idea of, of, of Angola is to bring people to Luanda and do that over there. Um, to do that, you need to, to have uh, uh, you know, a good quantity to make the trip. Worthwhile, we can discuss the, the, the sexiness of Luanda being a uh, diamond trading area. But uh, all in all, it's possible to do this online, but it has a number of, of uh, uh, strings attached that need to be addressed and, and addressed smartly. Well, thanks, Eden, and, and some, some valuable points you've raised there. And, you know, the digital world is, is fantastic, but maybe, you know, it doesn't provide answers to everything that, that we need as, as an industry, particularly in the diamond space. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> um, I think Ahmed, what, what I'd like to continue this sort of idea around uh, potential challenges that do still remain um, with regards to Angola in, in gaining more investment into the country. And in relation to that, Ahmed, do you see any global developments incentivizing more interest within the diamond industry, especially in Angola? Yes, so I think there are two elements to your questions. The first one is basically what challenges lie ahead and how can we navigate through them and well starting with the first one I see, I see a couple of challenges I think the first one is as I alluded to earlier is I think it's crucial that Angola does not fall into the trap of the trendy topic of resource nationalism which is which may be productive in the long term but that's again I have my doubts about it, is count, very counterproductive in the short term as well. And I see it firsthand as an international disputes lawyer. Uh, as I just mentioned earlier, by giving a couple of examples, uh, resource nationalism tends to scare investors away, uh, at least done badly. Uh, now, moving on to the next challenge, Angola, I think, really should capitalize on the current stability of its institutions. Uh, other countries in southern Africa have been negatively impacted by elections which dragged on forever, as I mentioned earlier. And it's really that, it's not really the fact that elections drag on forever, it's really the underlying notion of uncertainty. Investors, obviously, it's not going to come as a surprise to everyone, don't like uncertainty. They don't like not ha having a foggy picture. So uh, that, that's another challenge. Uh, now, the, I think it's also important that more now moving into more focused Angola mining market is, I think it's important that we, more attention is being turned towards the training of Angolan engineers. So basically, uh, we can mitigate the risk of shortage of expertise, basically. And finally, I think really the biggest challenge is that Angola should continue its ambitious reform plan that is underway. And by that, I mainly refer to the privatization plan. I mean, the planned IPO of a 
portion of Indiama's shares is definitely going to inject some fresh blood into the company. And that will reflect in the diamond sector by ricochet. I mean, based on my experience, investor-friendly and tax-friendly regulations have a clear impact on investment attractivity. Uh, we've seen this clearly in West Africa, where a number of West African countries have seriously managed to attract serious investment flow in the last decade as a result of an ambitious legal reform, which is exactly what Angola is doing right now, but should definitely keep doing. We will continue our conversation after this short message. It will never be the same. The new normal is business unusual. At Mining Review Africa, we want to partner with you to ensure that your brand is still visible in these unprecedented times. That's why we're offering you a bouquet of digital marketing choices to ensure that your company is still top of mind with your clients. This includes podcasts, partner profiles, videos, and webinars. Want to know more? Click on the Engage tab on miningreview.com today to find out how we can give you more bang for your digital buck. Welcome back to our conversation. Ahmed, let's look at the skills shortage in the country. How can this particular challenge be overcome? Okay, uh, straightforward answer to this. There, there are no miracle solutions to, to I mean, to to remedy to, to, to skills shortage. There, there need to be, um, I'm gonna come to a big elephant in the room, which is ESG, environmental, social, and governance. Uh, the, 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 this is something that is being currently being carried out, undertaken, enhanced uh, for the better. Oh, and while we're speaking about this, I think it's important to flag that now ESG is not a matter uh, that is being imposed by governments that invest foreign foreign mining companies have to deal with reluctantly sometimes happily some others now we're seeing a real trend globally where ngos and governmental organizations equally are monitoring compliance with esg standards uh, especially in the mining sector i think everyone may have followed the recent news about uh, third party submissions by some uh, English NGOs and the OECD against some mining companies operating in Colombia, for example, uh, saying that they allegedly did not comply with some ESG standards. So it, it's, it is really something that is key. And turning back to your question about how we remedy to shortage, to skills shortage, I think it goes through the inclusion of as much local content as possible. It can go through the creation of local apprenticeship institutions uh training programs uh it's not i mean it's more of the same i, I I'm, I'm very sorry not to offer any revolutionary ideas but, but i think the bottom line is more of the same but definitely more like more training by foreign investors of uh local individuals who have the experience thank you i would like to add to that if i may um, Botswana required De Beers uh, to move a, a big chunk of its operation from London to uh, to uh, Botswana. Uh, specifically, we're talking about their um, sorting, uh, and the sorting system is is that De Beers had in place in London is is uh, well established. Uh, they brought in new people at a slow pace, and and all at once, what they had to do. Uh, is uh, teach a group of people uh, in Botswana and Gaborone to uh, to do a job that they've never done before, 
and uh, to continue to run a major operation such as the beers without slowing down. And, and for the beers, you know, the way a parcel is, is made up is, is, has, you know, a lot of financial importance. Um, and it succeeded in doing so. Um, I've been to diamond mines in Sierra Leone. I've been to Kodo uh, and, and, and Koido. And you see at Koido a line of people standing outside. They want to get a, you know, find a job. And uh, touring the place, I see that they have a driving school. So I asked the guy that was showing me around the, the mine, why, are you, why do you have a driving? And he said, look, a lot of people here don't drive. They don't have a driving license. And plus we have you know, specialized you know, equipment. You know, nobody had an opportunity to even drive one of these huge trucks before. So you teach it. It's, it's possible the mining companies know that they'll need to, to bring skills into uh, the countries they're entering. Investors know it, or at least should know it. So it's part of the cost of doing business. I, I, if anything, it's great to benefit for that for the country because it's generating a lot of skills. And once you have a skillful uh, workforce, uh, it elevates the country's economy, the country's population in general, more income, more access to healthcare, to education, et cetera. Only, only positive comes out of it. Great, and I think, gentlemen, as you say, no, no groundbreaking uh, piece of information in that regard. Nonetheless, it's absolutely essential and critical uh, towards building any sector uh, within the mining industry in any country. So a very valid point that, that we've raised. So I appreciate your thoughts on that. Eden, I'd like to uh, bring in the, the World Federation of Diamond Bourses and their objective to secure a growing and sustainable international diamond industry. So what are your thoughts on how Angola can fit into that strategy? Uh, well, um, we got to remember, I have a lighting problem. Light is sipping in from the windows. Um, the, the WFDB has a number of roles. Uh, one of them is to ensure fair trade between Bourse members. So that means that if I buy, I, a member, say, of the uh, you know, Bourse in Antwerp, buy a diamond from, uh, from uh, a, a member of a bourse somewhere else, um, and we have a dispute between us, that this dispute can be uh, settled. So it's a, it's a commercial tool, and, and that is the backbone of the WFDB. Um, in that regard, Angola needs to, if it wants to have a successful diamond industry, it needs to have a bourse, and the bourse needs to be a member of the WFDB, because otherwise people will be diamond traders, elsewhere will be uh, hesitant to do business because they don't know how they'll resolve a dispute in case it arises. And, you know, sadly, there's, there's disputes do arise on occasion. Um, so so it's, it's important for, for Angola to have that in place. Uh, in addition to that, the WFDB as a member of the diamond industry is really pushing for, for reform, for, uh, uh, ethical behavior, et cetera, and, and uh, members will need to live up to that. Uh, I think uh, it's a no-brainer, especially with Peter Moose in the picture, who's familiar with the establishment of Dubai as the diamond trading center. Um, Angola just needs to follow the rules and make them happen and accept it, and, and it will make life for diamond traders and uh, anyone, anybody else involved with the diamond industry in Angola uh, much 
Thank you, Eden. You hit the nail on the head there, Fuangola. I'm, I'm not sure it fully answers the question, but I think it gives you a direction. No, it absolutely does. <laughs> Thank you, Eden. Ahmed, you know, Sodium, excuse the pronunciation if I've got it wrong, sure. they currently supervise trading activities in Angola and how diamonds affect the international market. So has the initiative to implement online auctions and tenders supported revenue growth and increased the number of players in Angola? And feeding on from that, can we see a trend globally of how it is affecting the industry for the top five? Yes. So my immediate reaction to this question is it's a tough one. Uh, I guess only time will tell, I suppose. Uh, however, my very short answer to this question is that the initiative to implement online auctions and tenders is, of course, likely to result in an increase of participants. And as a result, a bigger volume of diamonds will result being sold. That is highly likely, but that's not a surprise, uh, especially in the current circumstances, I mean. And as Eden alluded or indicated earlier, I mean, there is a global trend to ensure that this is being put in place by various markets players. Uh, that is why I think actually it is crucial that Angola embarks on that trend otherwise I think it really risks of losing out on the potential that the online auctions can offer and this is not really a time where you can afford to basically miss the train if I could say so colloquially. Another question for you Ahmed, has COVID-19 impacted the development of new diamond projects in Angola? Yes, I mean, very short answer. Yes, obviously, there are safety issues that led to the closure, I mean, not the closure, but at least the interruption of production. And as I mentioned earlier in the beginning of the talk, I mean, Angola has witnessed that around 7% or 8% drop in production last year. So yes, definitely. But as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the real issue is, is, is how you position yourself to make to take full advantage or maximize the, the, in the post-recovery era, basically. I mean, how you can, how as a government, you can allow the companies to, to basically resume production at full, full speed or full, full capacity and make up for that loss uh, that happened last year. So that's why I really, I keep repeating the same mantra, but it's a, it's a combination of factors. It's a combination of uh, continuing the privatization plan, ongoing legislative reforms, and really engaging underground with mining companies, seeing, okay, what, what do you guys need? How can we help you in, uh, in recovering the production rate that has been lost? Because it's a win-win situation. The more production there is, the better it is for the government as well. So I'm going to ask you each uh, one last question or one question that I'd like you to both comment on. And Eden, I'll start with you. What mineral growth do you foresee in diamond trade towards the establishment of the Angolan Diamond Hub and an Angolan Diamond Bourse? Um, it's a good question. Uh, it requires looking into a crystal ball and trying to understand uh, what the, the future has for us. Um, Angola is a very large uh, uh, producing country and, uh, and it has a lot of potential in the sense that it, there's the range of goods. The goods have a lot of demand outside of, uh, had a lot of good demand outside of the country. And the, the diamond industry at large is becoming a lot more sophisticated in, in a variety of ways. And it's very good at finding a use for every diamond that's available out there. So in that regard, it, I think um, as long as Angola is good at preventing at uh, generating 
a, uh, a good business environment, a successful business environment mitigates its, its, the issues that people are, are concerned about, I think that uh, there is a bright future. Uh, demand for diamonds is only growing as population grows, as uh, uh, an interest in bridal jewelry continues. Um, I can see only good coming out of diamonds. Okay, thank you. Essential in Thank you, Eden. Ahmed, your, your final remarks on this particular question and anything else that, that comes to mind that, that came out of our discussion today? Yes, and I'm actually quite relieved that I'm not the only one to whom the, the words crystal ball came to his mind, so I'm quite relieved. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, this is... I apologize. No, 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 the same, same for me. Uh, um, basically, it's a tough one for me, especially, I mean, lawyers are generally risk averse and don't like making predictions. That's not going to come as a surprise. But from my perspective, it, the move towards the creation of a diamond board and a diamond pub, uh, also accompanied with the ongoing reforms, I'm sure will catapult angle and the top spots of diamond production and marketing. And th that is highly likely. Uh, but however, I should also mention that it, th there is heavy investment going on in the national diamond cutting and polishing industry and they're expected to continue to rise and i'm here referencing the or mentioning the uh, construction of the sorimo complex uh, so basically which is a major mining fo focused project financed by the state and around 100 million dollars which will comprise uh, four diamond cutting and polishing plants two training centers i mean th there is already great future projects in the pipelines. However, it's crucial crucial that basically Angola does two things. Uh, keep the pace of legislative reforms and also the best, best way to avoid disputes down the line, and I'm speaking from my own area of specialty now, is to basically work on how to avoid disputes with foreign investors. Because it's really these disputes, the more disputes you have with foreign investors, the less attractive you become as a country. So, and just, I'll just mention en passant, the three main sources of risks or dispute risks in the mining industry that we see right now. The, the, the first one are disputes related to the sudden or discriminatory legislative changes, which I've mentioned earlier. And then we have disputes over rights under joint venture agreements. That's why I've mentioned also earlier that it's very important that your rights and obligations are, are drafted as precisely as possible. And the last one are disputes over environmental issues, which we also touched upon earlier. So if, if you can work on avoiding these three major, major dispute risks, I think you're a safer place. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today and sharing your deep insights with us. Thank you for listening. Be sure to log on to miningreview.com for more upcoming podcasts, daily mining news, industry insights, and more. Until next time, goodbye.